Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Guinos Hermes. Today, a very special guest from abroad in the spirit of Hermes. You know, he is the one who is not only a trickster, but a caretaker of travelers and the traveling god himself. We have with us a friend from afar, from another island. Here on Turtle Island, visiting us from Ireland is Munkan Magan, who has written books on his travels in Africa, India, and South America. He writes occasionally for the Irish Times and presents the Almanac of Ireland podcast for RTF. He has made dozens of documentaries on issues of world culture for TG4, RTE, and Travel Channel. His books include 32 Words for Field, Listen to the Land Speak, Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers, and Other Words for Nature, and Wolfmen and Waterhounds. With Anticam, he's collaborated on two art books for Red Fox Press. I'll have a link to his website in the show notes. Monkon Magan, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, my friend. Oh, Nikos, lovely to talk to you. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. This is great stuff. And, you know, I'm particularly glad that you, we almost had to postpone because we were, it looked like our schedules might not sync. But then we would have postponed for after uh, Sawin, which I think it's good that we have this before because it, it that plays a role in the book and maybe we'll get to that. And so I want to maybe open up by talking about your story resonates so much with something that is happening in the dominant culture. Sometimes I, I, I make this joke that we have what the soul says and what the ego hears. The soul says, take the leap, and we go skydiving. And the soul says, take the inward journey, and then we get on a plane to Bora Bora, and we're sure we've got to get out. Now, I don't want to project on your story in particular, but there's something in this, in this spirit, right? The urge to escape, to get out of the place, because here in contemporary times, the worst thing would be to live and die in the place you were born. You know, we can't have that. So there, there's an urge to escape, and we may not even know why. Sometimes we have beautiful rationalizations over it, these rationalizations about travel. And there is, of course, a venerable tradition of pilgrimage, but that's not quite the same as what we see today with this very small group of privileged people who can get on an airplane and go anywhere they want to other people's ecologies and other people's landscapes. And you, But you took those journeys, and at a certain point, you had a moment of recognition. Wait a second. And it's like the old Rumi poem, which I guess got turned into a story called The Alchemist, which I never read. But Rumi's got that poem, right, where the seeker goes out, and they're sure that there's gold somewhere. <laughs> and they go to all the way to Cairo, and it turns out it's, it's back home where they left. <laughs> Is that a fair sort of characterization of the spirit of what happened to you? And then maybe you can tell a little bit about it. That's a beautiful summation, and I've never heard it put that way, and I've never thought about it as as eloquently in that. But it's exactly what happened to me, as you say. So I was brought up in Ireland, in Dublin, for the first 18 years of my life, and then felt the urge. Life didn't make sense to me. So as you say, that classic thing, I just traveled. I fled my own culture and my own country and went off living in Africa, in South America, in, in India for, for long periods of time. 
And eventually I did that for probably about five, six years. And then my brother and I started making documentary series about all the places I had been. So again, documentary series in China, documentary series in the Middle East, one in South America, um, travels through India, up to Greenland, all the time documenting other cultures. And then it was when I was on Lanyu Island, which is an island off the coast, about 90 miles off the coast of Taiwan, where the Yami people live. And they're this indigenous Yami people who live under the ground. They're a Polynesian seafaring people who live in these underground tunnels because of the tornadoes and the hurricanes that hit the island in winter. They said to me that we didn't have the same language, we didn't have the same culture, and we were not understanding each other. But they began to sing a song. They began to sing the song of their birth song of their people. And they said, like, you won't understand this song. But they said, we know you come from somewhere else. It's probably by the sea or by a river because most people are water people. They live, they settle by the lake or the sea or the river. And so they said, you probably have a birth song connected to your ocean and we will connect in that link. And it immediately brought me back to everything I was running away from. And the key things I was running away from was this deep immersion in Irish culture that my grandmother and my great grand uncle had began 100 years ago. When they moved out to the southwest coast of Ireland, to an island off the southwest coast of Ireland, the Blascan Islands, to immerse themselves in the lore, in the mythology, in the history of our people going back thousands of years. And what they got were these songs by these fishermen, the birth songs of our people that had been preserved on these islands in the Irish language. They relearned the Gaelic language, the Irish language at that time, and the folklore and the myth and the lore that went with it. And they gave it to me. Like, I couldn't get it from my great-grand-uncle because he was one of the, he was the leader, the founder of the Irish Army, of the Irish Volunteers, the IRA, that began our fight for independence in 1913 from Britain. And he died leading that fight in the Easter Rising in 1916. But he passed it on to my grandmother, who was only young. She was only 16 in 1916. And so I'm born in 1970. And she is determined to pass on the lore, the spirit, the language, the passion for a place and for a culture and for a lost heritage to me. Um, so she did that. But of course, I ran from it, as you always do. You know, the ancestors, your old elders have a plan for you. And I fled. But that moment with this yami elder, Shapan Mate Nan, in his underground tunnel on Lanyu Island, thought, I need to go back. I need to go back and continue the the the, the digging of lore and the the bringing back of our heritage that my great-granduncle and my grandmother had tried to do. Mm. That's so marvelous. It's such a marvelous story. I love that. On so many levels, because there is an extinction of languages along with an extinction of species. You're noticing, maybe, maybe the viewers are noticing, we're, we're, we're in the, the setting sun here in California, the golden place, and you're, it's very warm there. The light's warm here. It's been overcast here today, but you have the warm light there, and it's playing a little bit with the camera, but it's nice. I think it's... I'm just, I'm just one block from Sunset Boulevard. I'm on Vine and, and, and Sunset Boulevard, so it's actually the sunset Get, racing down. I used yeah. to live right... You could throw a stone and hit where I used to live. You're right in Hollywood. Yeah, I was yeah. really close to Sunset and Vine. Absolutely. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a nice place. Well, there you go. That's a nice residence, my brother. Um, I think, you know, what's wonderful about the book then is that it, it, it this presents... Um, 
a reminder to us. You know, I was just talking to somebody through text about some so, this question of, of um, scientists sometimes falling prey to self-deception. And, and I always love Milarepa's line, my religion is the, the ending self-deception. That's my religion. And th- we do have these rationalizations about travel. And what's beautiful about your book is you could read your book, learn wonderful things about Irish culture without having to go to Ireland. You could instead like write a check to Home Tree, one of the charities you're connected to, and say, hey, just plant some trees and take care of the land there. I'll stay here and see if I can learn the lessons that this place has. It's so weird on Turtle Island, though, for us, because conquest did things differently than it did in Ireland, right? There, 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 we, no one is from here but the indigenous people, whereas the Irish people, you're in the lands that, that were conquered, and you can go back and find that history. For us, it really invites us, too, to open up more dialogue with the people who do know about the land. But we'll, maybe we'll get to that. I think I want to start in a, a slightly different place, which is that you open the uh, the book with... Oh, okay. Well, that's related. Let, let me start. Let me start with the uh, with the fact that you lived close to a place that has tremendous spiritual and historical significance, and even you, a person so deeply interested in the, in the land, didn't realize how close you were to it. And that get, brings us to to the idea of Samhain, which I was just mentioning, which is Halloween. But could you talk about th- that discovery that you just here you were so interested in recovering this, and you were such so close to something that was so important. Can you tell a little bit about that story, that place, your discovery of it, and what it means? Yeah. So just briefly, in the last three weeks, I've been making a television series about flightless, flightless travel throughout Europe, so trying to take holidays without trains. So I've been traveling through Slovenia and traveling through um, Cro- um, Croatia and, and other parts and, and northern Italy. And in each of these places, people are telling me, we want you to taste the water. The water is the purest thing we have. This water is, they say, you know, if you ever see a bit of rubbish, a bit of a plastic bottle thrown in the area, it won't be thrown by us. We are a people who've been living here for so long and we are proud. And so the reason that we keep, the reason that our water is so pure is because the mountains are pure, is because the roads are pure, is because the fields are pure. Now, you don't get that in Ireland. You know, in Ireland, we pollute our rivers, we pollute our land, we throw rubbish everywhere like any colonized people. We're a people who are utterly disconnected from our land and our story. So we're both, in some ways, and we can we can talk about this with great subtlety, one could say that there are some elements of indigeneity in Ireland, because as you say, my DNA goes back. I have been on, my people have been on that island for 6,000 years. Like that is some stretch. But I'm also a colonized people for the last, whatever, 700 years we were made to be slaves on that land. So we forgot all of the connection, the sacredness of that land. So you mentioned, as you said, this book. I've written a few books over the last few years, and that's interesting. But what's far more interesting is this revival that's happening in Ireland, rising up. It's nothing to do with my book. I just happen to be one of the figures in this. And so let's say the first book that happened during COVID in 2020, it's called 32 Words for Field. And the publisher, it was the main publisher in Ireland, Gill Books. They know their market better than anyone else. And they said it would sell 5,000 copies of the book. And it sold 95 copies, 95,000 copies. Um, it's just, it's just, so it's just one example of a phenomenon that's happening in Ireland, but people are waking up after, you know, the la- a few centuries of being colonized, of being oppressed, of having to con- disconnect and just live as 
live as in survival mode and not think about the future, not think about the energy and the resonance of the land. Just in the last five years, people are waking. And so, as you say, there were places in my vicinity that I'd known no idea about. Nobody in Ireland has knowledge of their vicinity. We have closed ourselves off from it. So what's interesting is all of the wisdom, all of the lore of the, all of the places are still there. But just in the past few generations, it was told to us by our ancestors, forget that and get yourself to Britain, get yourself to America, get yourself to Australia, because the future will, um, you know, there is no future in Ireland. So as you said, I didn't know about the ritual sites. I didn't know about the holy wells. I didn't know that all the rivers around Emory were goddesses. In all our myths, in all our stories, even the place names today, they are goddesses that have the full spiritual entity of of the land going back thousands of years. So all like everything about Ireland is we are ignorant of our of our people, of our culture. And the best example of that is the Irish language. So you know, everyone in Ireland spoke Irish for maybe two and a half, three thousand years, at least two thousand years. It's hard to say, probably three thousand. And then up until really the famine years, up until the 1840s, when the, I mean, Britain had been trying to stop us speak our language for the last few hundred years, but hadn't succeeded. In 1840s, the land failed us. You know, the potato failed us and Britain had made sure that we just survived on one crop because it was simpler and easier for them. And so in the 1840s, when the famine was happening, Ireland was exporting more food than we've ever exported ever. Like the finest of beef, the finest of um, of, of, of grain and oysters and, and, and cereal was all being exported. The land was producing vast amounts. But Britain was making sure making sure us, the people of the island, didn't get it. So so when nature, you could say, you know, the blight came, but it was really it was an economic thing forced by this. It was a sort of a genocide or a, a genoslaughter is a better word, an idea to try and kill off the people. And our ancestors, my our mothers said, you must forget the language. You must forget that spiritual connection to place because the only hope was to take English, to take on English ways, to take on rationality. In other words, to break that sense that there is a that there is a spirit, that there is an animism, that there is a God in every leaf, in every tree, in every branch. We had to break all of that. And it was right that we did so. It was right that we regarded these things as primitive and backward and that we took on English because we wouldn't have survived had we did. But it has left us now, this people who are willing to pollute our land and are willing to deface our sacred sites. Um, and that was, the, that was the norm. That was our story. And to drink, as everyone knows, the Irish just drink to hide that wound, like any colonised people, except for something is happening in the last five years, the last maybe 10 years. There's a reconnection happening. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. And and uh, it's interesting how that was part of the program on Turtle Island, too, to, to get the indigenous people to stop speaking their languages. Of course, uh, World War II might not have been won had not some of them kept those languages. And those languages are profound in the way they differ from all the Indo-European languages, you know, even even Irish, because we're all from that family of languages that do have a subject-object-verb uh, structure that differs from the deeply, profoundly process-oriented languages that you can find on Turtle Island. They're very Blackfoot is so different from from the Indo-European languages, and of course more so than you know, because English is a, is a weird kind of you know somewhat newer, stole from other languages and still potential that we can learn because, as you point out, even reflecting on Irish um, helps you. And, and when you reflect then on the roots of some words in English and you go back to the, the closer, closer to the Indo-European root, the Greek, 
It's interesting, too, the, the kinship between my people and yours, because on, I'm from Crete in particular, and people often remark how much that island feels like a land of the goddess. And that is a place that people were living in, uh, for thousands of years. Uh, of course, now the oldest uh, human footprint that we know of is, is on Crete. There weren't people living there. It would have been part of Africa at the time, but it's kind of weird that it's there. Um, anyway, these are all fascinating things. And you're right, this, there, is, um, there is something destabilizing about what I would refer to as uh, conquest consciousness. It seems uh, it itself is stable but not resilient. And the consciousness that it seems to have destabilized in indigenous cultures are highly resilient, but not stiff and stable. They're not stuck. So there's there's an easy dislocation that happens. And you're right, it turns into Richard Sorensen. I often mention him. His work is really... Do you ever come across Sorensen's work? I can share with you some of it, but he, he has this view that he himself, because he was active in the 60s, that he was able to see how conquest consciousness destabilizes a, a more destabilizes or destabilized a more indigenous way of being. Um, at any rate, uh, these are fascinating things. I, I love that you mentioned water because the best water I've ever had is here in California, but you have to go to the headwaters. And it would be a thing that I, if I think if I lived there, it would be one of the things that I would say to you, you've got to come to the water. And it's only because it hasn't had a chance to be sullied. You go right to the headwaters, and that water has been filtered. It's centuries old, at least 150 years old. So it's much cleaner than anything. I've never tasted water like it. Beautiful things. So the diff one difference again is that I might not have any idea what is here in the Maxaraja, the Santa Cruz Mountains. I might not know what these sacred sites were because the records have all been erased. But you were able to find out that a, a, a very important place was nearby you and you didn't realize it. So let me take you back to that story if you don't mind telling us about it. Yeah, so, I mean, it was less than 20 kilometers from me. And I've, I've driven through this little village called Athboy, or Ahavui, the ford over the Yellow River, for so long. And I just happened to be looking. I'm stuck in traffic, and I looked up to my, up to my right, and uh, in other words, to the, it was to the, to, to, the, um, to the southeast, and I saw this hill. It was a low hill, but I, on Google Maps, where I was trying to find a way around the town because of the traffic, I could see there was a perfect crossroads on top of the hill, and those roads were aligned northwest, southeast, and I thought, okay, that is no coincidence. There was some reason to do this. And I could see it was called the Hill of Ward. And I had heard there was a thing of Hill of Ward was one of the sacred hills. So our people were, you know, were needed these assembly sites where regularly during the ceremonial uh, periods of the year and for other gatherings and for markets, they would gather on these hilltops. And this was one, originally it wasn't called the Hill of Ward, it was called Ward, it was called Tlachtka at the time. And just my, from my from my basic Irish, I understood Tlacht is an old word for earth and Goth means spear. So it's the earth spear. And the spear, when you have that, it's basically the shard of the sun. It's basically a lightning bolt because Goth can also be a lightning bolt. So there was a place connected to this goddess called Tlachtka, the earth um, lightning bolt. And there were stories attached to her that she was, as you said, very connected to Samhain, the time where the, our world and the other worlds blend into each other. And she was a goddess. And she was, the story about her was that she was connected to the sun because her father was Mog Roh, who was the great man who turned the sun in the sky, the great god who turned the sun in the sky. 
And the most interesting thing is the darkest stories from Christianity were told about her and about this site, which immediately makes us realize it was obviously a potent place that St. Patrick and those who followed him were, were petrified of. And so most of the stories are about this uh, terrible rape that happened to Tlachka, how she was raped on that hill, gave birth eventually to three sons and they became kings. But really it was the violence of that rape and then the stories about her father and how he killed John the Baptist. So what we're told is, okay, this was a site connected to a female goddess. We can still see from the archaeological remains that there are fires there. They are the burn marks in the soil of these fires that happened there. And we are told it was connected to an evil an evil woman who was raped because of her power and that her father was even more evil. So all we know from that is, okay, that's a power point. We need to go up and experience it again. And I said, so much of the rest of the knowledge sort of has been lost, except in the 14th century, there was a gathering of 15,000 horsemen on the site. So we realized there was a, there was, you know, in the medieval age, we realized that it was still a potent place. But over the last few centuries, so much of that last lore was gone. So, the responsibility on me and on us now who are awaking in Ireland and again, talking to First Nations people in Canada, here in the States, in Australia, they're telling us we need to go back to those places and listen, listen to the land speak, listen to what's there and try and intuit the wisdom of those places. And that's very, it's intimidating to do, particularly as a, as people or me personally, I realise I am so conditioned by my Western thinking, by my British education that it's hard to open myself up to that clearer thinking of the goddess in the land and what does she want and how do we relate to to her in a non-binary, in a non-dual way. So it's great that we're finding, that I'm finding all around me, these wells, these sacred wells, which were again, they were like vulvas. They were entranceways into the infinite form of, of the goddess. But, and that the only reason they exist is because women kept these places alive, kept them hidden away from the church. All of the stories of St. Patrick coming to Ireland are him trying to shoo, how to try to, yeah, throw um, druids and um, sort of shamish, shamanic figures away from these wells and try and Christianize them and control them. But these were the node points, the central um, nodes of the matrix of that other world. And it was the women who carefully and quietly kept the places alive and allowed them to become associated with St. Patrick, with a saint or with a nun and with holy crosses. But almost they were keeping them alive until now, knowing that there might be a time where the people of Ireland or the spirit of the land, this is nothing to do with Ireland, it's just that Ireland happens to be one example of, I think, something that's happening universally, a time where the, the grips of the Christian church and the grips of our own farming, our own exploitative mentality, might weaken and we could we could reconnect with this again mm, yeah it's like having something you know in the tibetan buddhist tradition there's the idea of the terma the text that is that buried either in a mind stream or in a place for the time when it's when it, when people are ripe for it so the text can even be buried in someone's mind stream and then you know a hundred years later or hundreds of years later the person suddenly this this text is revealed to them but it was it was put there by by an ancestor, an ancient ancestor. Or you come to a rock, and and suddenly you know the the, the rock breaks open, and there's a text in there. What is this text doing there? Just been waiting, and the land itself is that. I mean, it's it, it the, the the image of that 
gives us the both. You know, we don't have to be literal, right? That it's saying that the land speaks. We're in the, uh, of course, the Lotus Sutra when uh, when Buddha is told that this place that that he has has come to to be awakened at and to help others to wake up in. Well, it's just a dump, isn't it? And then it, you know these and these beings from other parts of the cosmos they come and they say, "Don't you, do you need our help? You know, because this is a mess. How are you going to help these people?" And he says, "No, I don't need your help." And at that moment, all these beings come welling up from the earth. It's an upwelling of bodhisattvas, the awakening beings, and that image of the awakening beings coming out of the earth to show us that we it, it's not a dump and it's not hopeless here that we can be woken up. It's a real resonance with what you're. What you're pointing to. Yeah. I, I was wondering if we could, let's try a, a little bit of reading. Would you like to do it? Let's see how it yeah, goes. I'd love to. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I've sent, I've selected a couple of passages. So why don't you read number one? Yeah. yeah. So it's no coincidence that there are hardly any places in Ireland where you are not in close proximity to a site associated with a particular deity or hero and the stories connected with them. The reach of folklore is more extensive than broadband or mobile phone coverage in many parts. It forms a carefully constructed web of stories whose aim is to communicate old knowledge to future generations. Our ancestors seem determined to pass on their wisdom to us across time. And nowhere is this more evident than at the ceremonial ritual site of Newgrange on the banks of the River Boyne in County Meath. At dawn each year, on the winter solstice, one of the most remarkable astronomical rituals takes place there. The rising sun enters an underground ceremonial passage and shoots down into a womb-like chamber beneath the earth, sending its light and heat into the soil and illuminating symbols that are attempting to communicate ideas and concepts to us that we no longer fully understand. It was conceived and constructed by our Neolithic forebears over 5,000 years ago. And having been renovated in the 1960s, it once again operates as was originally designed. On the shortest day of each year, the sun slides down a subterranean passage. My aspiration is to do something similar, to send shards of light across the landscape, illuminating certain features and patterns, as well as old beliefs and customs that are still in people's memories today and are encoded in the lore and in the environment. Now, if you would like me, Nikos, to go on a little bit more, or if you want to interrupt me halfway, you decide. No, you can you can finish that passage. It's wonderful. Yeah, just okay. Good. My last book was about language, which is the very opposite of land, in being completely dependent on humans. Without our minds and our bodies, it doesn't exist. It is no life beyond that which we humans bestow on it. Yet the land has always existed. It just is. It needs no help from us. In every speck of its being, it is fully present, fully manifested. The choice is ours whether we wish to engage with it in a meaningful way or merely accept it as a backdrop to our lives. From the land's point of view, our choice is irrelevant. But to us, from a psychological, spiritual and physical health standpoint, it makes all the difference. That's wonderful. And this is the, this is a beautiful picture that we're getting that there is wisdom encoded in the land that that we as human beings in a dialogue with the land we could hear the land speak to us and then we could share what it was saying and the knowledge could be put there because as Gregory Bateson uh, pointed out and many cognitive scientists agree mind is ecological 
It's not atomistic. It's ecological and relational, profoundly so. The only critique I would make as a philosopher is that poetically, I give you the point that the land says, look, you're either going to get with the program or not. But on the other hand, the land is calling to us, right? Because you point out, too, that the rivers are not the same as they were for your ancestors because we weren't connected with them. And there's a way in which the land and the rivers would love us to be connected with them again, that we do make a difference. There isn't an organism-environment duality, really. But you're right, there's a kind of deeper sense in which, hey, pipsqueak, you better you better get with it because we've got billions of years to clean up your mess you know, once you're gone. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, to do with the limitation of my thinking and my conditioning. Like, I am finding it so hard to get into this wider paradigm and I'm struggling the whole time. And even like, so my first book was called 32 Words for Field. And it showed some of the great insights and wisdom and wider awarenesses, Weltanschauung, you could say, worldviews that are contained within the Irish language. And during COVID, I would do these Zoom talks with First Nation people in Canada and the States and South America and in Australia. And I would first give examples of words that showed such wisdom, such wide awareness and such subtlety. And then the native people would come and say their words. And I would be so humbled because although Irish language as an old language, as an old European language, does have wisdom on it, in it, it is actually so limited compared to a truly indigenous language. You can tell it all from the title of the book, 32 words for field. Like that's lovely that we have 32, I could name 40 different words for field in Irish. It shows a deep connection to the landscape, but in fact, it's all from a human centric point of view. It's how can I use the land? How can I exploit the land better? And all of our terms, unfortunately, because we've been farmers for four and a half thousand years and actually six and a half, we just became better farmers four and a half thousand years ago. And, you know, that's direct lineage of my people, my DNA on that island. I've been farming that land for four and a half to six, actually six and a half thousand years. And we've screwed up the land because of it. So I have lost the truly um, indigenous mindset, which is about working in absolute harmony with nature. And of course, there's nothing wrong with farming as long as it's done sustainably. But the idea, my people definitely for the first two thousand, for, you know, for up until 4,000 years ago, we were farming and doing hunter gathering. And that really is a way of you are more in tune with the land. I mean, it is, it's an amazing achievement that the Irish managed to survive for six and a half thousand years on a scrubby, rocky land that was, um, you know, not suitable to farming. We only did it by actually knowing how to farm, how to work in tune with nature. But it, it was still men trying to think, how can we better make the land so that we can survive? Whereas what I hear from First Nations people, humans are actually way down the picture. First, it's about nature. So, yeah, there's only a, there's a limited amount of, where, of, of wisdom and awareness in any sort of, I think, white European culture like mine. Yeah, well, it is, again, it's a consequence of the whole Indo-European framework, which, which you know, this is a, a culture of horse wrestlers, ultimately. You know, I mean, all due respect to our ancestors, but something went sideways, I think. Um, in comparison with other cultures. And not, of course, there would have been great wisdom and not, not everyone in the culture would be the same. So you would have had elder, real elders, real sages, real visionaries and seers. Um, but you can see this even in Sanskrit with the way, um, you know, when I've read translators working, say, with Buddhist philosophical texts, and they talk about how the Buddhist philosophers really push hard on that language's rigidity because they're, they are experiencing the world as process. 
the way some indigenous languages express it. And there is a, I'll put a link for people who are curious about this. There's a wonderful essay by uh, uh, Leroy Little Bear and uh, co-authored by Heavyhead who, who talk about the differences between Blackfoot and uh, Indo-European languages. And it's really beautiful. Of course, they can't quite convey what Blackfoot is like, but they, they really try. And it's so interesting to hear them talk about it. But David Bohm also, he talked about this idea of the rail mode which he's taking from the Greek, the reo is flow, the flow mode. And and he was just saying that even if you think about etymology and if you try to push the nouns into a verbal structure and and let the nouns flow, you, you don't have to change the language to begin to change your thinking. And so, so I think the Buddhist philosophers show that too. If you have a shift in consciousness, you'll just begin to use language differently, often more poetically, because texts like the Avatamsaka Sutra are psychedelic beyond belief. I mean, it's incredible to read this text that's, you know, got mind-blowing metaphors and images in it like nothing else I've, I've seen in, in our culture. Okay, well, I would like to pair that with, uh, uh, as I mentioned to you, and the audience doesn't know this, but you, in, elsewhere in your book, you have a footnote that uh, cites the book that I'm going to read from, and you don't have this passage in it, but it's a wonderful passage. This is a book that I recommend to people. It's called Wisdom Sits in Places. And it's a way to try to imagine what it would be like to live uh, like uh, as Mankan is inviting us into, just to imagine seeing the land and sensing the teachings that are in it and being able to allow them to help you in your life. So we have in this scene a group of indigenous people, one named Louise, another Lola, another Emily and Robert, and then there's also uh, a dog. It's an extremely hot, extremely quiet moment. And this is where the, the narrator is an anthropologist. He, he gives us this, uh, this scene and he says, The silence is broken by Louise, who reaches into her oversized purse for a can of, I'll just say soda, so not to advertise to anyone, jerks it open with a loud snap and begins to speak in the Sibiku dialect of the Western Apache. She speaks softly, haltingly, and with long pauses to accentuate the seriousness of what she is saying. Late last night, she reports, sickness assailed her younger brother. Painful cramps gnawed at his stomach. Numbness crept up his leg and into his thighs. He vomited three times in rapid succession. He looked extremely pale. In the morning, just before dawn, he was driven to the hospital at White River. The people who had gathered at his home were worried and frightened and talked about what happened. One of them, Louise's cousin, recalled that several months ago, when the young man was working on a cattle roundup near a place named Trail Extends into a Grove of Stick-like Trees, he had inadvertently stepped on a snakeskin that lay wedged in a crevice between some rocks. Another member of the roundup, who witnessed the incident, cautioned the young man that contact with snakes is always dangerous and urged him to immediately seek the services of a snake medicine person. But Louise's younger brother had only smiled, remarking tersely that he was not alarmed and no harm would befall him. Louise, who is plainly worried and upset by these events, pauses and sips from her drink. After a minute or so, having regained her composure, she begins to speak again. But Lola quietly interrupts her. Emily and Robert will speak as well. What follows is a record of their discourse together with English translations of the utterances. I am not going to try to speak Apache, so here are just the English translations. Louise says, My younger brother. Lola, It happened at line of white rocks extends up and out at this very place. Then there's a pause for over half a minute. Emily says, Yes, 
It happened at whiteness spreads out descending to water at this very place. A pause for over half a minute. Lola says, Truly, it happened that trail extends across a red ridge with alder trees at this very place. Louise laughs softly. Robert says, Pleasantness and goodness will be forthcoming. Lola says, Pleasantness and goodness will be forthcoming. Louise says, My younger brother is foolish, isn't he, dog? Now the talk ceases, and uh, the anthropologist goes and uh, speaks with Lola, who gives her commentary. And Lola says this, We gave that woman pictures to work on in her mind. We didn't speak too much to her. We didn't hold her down. That way she could travel in her mind. She could add on to them, the pictures, easily. We gave her clear pictures with place names, so her mind went to those places, standing in front of them as our ancestors did long ago. That way she could see what happened there long ago. She could hear stories in her mind, perhaps hear our ancestors speaking. She could recall the knowledge of our ancestors. We call it speaking with names. Place names are all we need for that. Speaking with names. We just fix them up. That woman was too sad. She was worried too much about her younger brother. So we tried to make her feel better. We tried to make her think good thoughts. That woman's younger brother acted stupidly. He was stupid and careless. He failed to show respect. No good. We said nothing critical about him to her. We talked around it. Those place names are strong. After a while, I gave her a funny story. She didn't get mad. She was feeling better. She laughed. Then she had enough, I guess. She spoke to the dog about her younger brother, criticizing him. So we knew we had helped her out. Isn't that wonderful, huh? So powerful. So powerful. Yeah. 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 And you know what it reminds me of? So there's a great anthropologist called Henry Glassy who wrote some beautiful work about, about Ireland. Irish folk history was one text from the north. And the main thing, passing the time in Bally, in Bally Me Known, in Bally Me Known. This was about time he spent in Fermanagh in 1982. But his description of what he's hearing around the fireplace, or around the, yeah, mainly around the fireplace and cottages, was very like that. Because although in my discussion, I've just been hard on Ireland in terms of our wisdom, in terms of the earth, because we're farmers. Us, the lang- Irish language is so full of the she, of the fairy worlds. So, you know, up until my my mum's generation, the, the spirit world was just as important as the real world. And so everybody, even still today, you could say we, ha- particularly in rural Ireland, we have fairy stories. We have stories connected to every to every tree, to every cliff, to every road, to every bog. Fairy stories about the other world interceding with our world. And that's how we communicated uh, messages to our to other people. And it was this great anthropologist who studied done so much work in Colombia, in in different parts of South America, in Africa, in Indonesia. This Henry Henry Glassy, when he came to Fermanagh, he caught this. Um, and again, nobody else has done much work on it since. And I'm fascinated to find so much of that spirit is about. The goddess. It's about the the female, the kailach, the old hag, being in these places, and each of them, their mess, their moral stories. And if you heard someone telling a an, a, a single line from a fairy story, now it would be as as unintelligible as those snippets of conversation that were the basso was recording there. But actually, everybody knows. 
who the character is, who the spirit, whether the fairy daily or the 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 you know the 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 the, the, the hungry sod or all of the different metaphysical and supernatural aspects of our culture that were as real to us as the real. Um, and I'm just so excited. Like as I said, nobody has really done the research on the goddess in Ireland or on the importance of the spirit in Ireland. Um, and their legacy still today, and how how this how the how the spirit is connected to to the landscape in such in such a strong way. Yeah, yeah, you see that with again there too. There's such a resonance with my people because as Maria Jimputas famously argues that this was the big shift, right? That there there was this powerful goddess presence in Greece and other places, and that this this shift happened over. And uh, yes, it's important to recover, and also that sense of the um, of the interwovenness of these realities, that the reality that we experience in, in, in our kind of habitual consciousness is not the end of it. And that consciousness, what you be, can become conscious of, depends on the developmental path of your consciousness. And that in turn depends on what your culture is giving you. And we have a very anemic kind of education. You can't, as I so often say, you can't maintain this level of dysfunction without a dysfunctional education. We have to be kept cut off from the real sources of wisdom, love, and beauty. And that includes yep. the mystery. That includes the things that go beyond the paradigms that we're currently trapped in. Yeah. And what's interesting, we can't even find a time when this paradigm of love and spirit and beauty existed in Ireland or in, in Greece. Let's say, because if I'm saying that all stories in Ireland are about a goddess, you could say, okay, well, when was that time? And there's no historical time you can prove. What we know is that Ireland and Europe, Western Europe, has been under the, the control of, of the Christian mindset, you know, for the last 2000 years. But before that, what we know, Ireland was, a, you can call it a Celtic culture, although Celtic is really a language. But it was a time where our gods were, were, were shamanic figures, the Druid figures, these male Druids, very like Brahmins, extremely like Indian Brahmins, same, the same lore, the same mindset, the same chants and mantras. And, and all our stories are connected to those. So the mythological stories of Finn McCool, of Cúchulain, of our male mythical heroes, were these great, powerful gods, strong males. So you say, okay, but when was the goddess Monkana? You're talking, I'm, Monkana is trying to claim that there's these stories connected landscape to goddesses and the wells. But we know it's been 2,000 years of Christianity, at least 1,000 years, probably 2,000 years before that, of this male druids. When were the women? We don't actually know. They've left no legacy. They've left no historical legacy. But within these place names, within these legends and stories, we can see they were there. Uh, and it's a lovely thing. There's not, they've been wiped out so well by the men that actually there's nothing you can prove they existed. But the fables, the myths, the lore is so infused with them. They must have been deeply there at some stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Minoan findings indicate a, a little bit more presence of the goddess, of the, but there's some debate about that, you know. So the Phaistos disc, we're not sure is it as old as we think it is, but it seems to be uh, dedicated to the goddess. It seems that the, the Palace of Minos is actually a temple for a goddess. It's not clear, but there are still lots of questions. But you're right, we still don't have a clear sense of what it was um, completely, but... Um, and what we'd like to think in Ireland, at least, that this goddess energy wasn't about temples. It wasn't about egomaniacal sites of worship. It was a more humble thing. It was a more intuitive thing. It was a more land-based thing. And what we could probably claim, and just by intuition, that actually it did survive. It has survived until the present day, but it just did not need, let's say, vainglorious temples. It has exist existed within the water, within the stream, close to the land in a humble way.
Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something, you know, the Minoans were perhaps influenced by the Egyptians in building things. I mean, who knows what? I mean, it's kind of fascinating that they had, you know, uh, indoor toilets with, with running water and all of that. And this is thousands of years ago. They may have been influenced by the, by the kind of Egyptian building orientation because there, that would have been a very strong influence in, in that whole trading route. Um, but yeah, and at the same time, there are these places that people, Cretans, know about, you know, that are they're unmarked or you, you sense them when you're there and that sort of energy. I think it's quite similar. What's beautiful is one of the stories that you have is related to the, the goddess Anya. I mean, first of all, there's that incredible encounter with, with the man in the cottage, which seems quite synchronistic. And maybe you can share this weird moment of, of almost touching the other world and then and then discovering, wait a second, this really is the land of the goddess and and that people even people today know it and people long ago must have really sensed it because I mean that this is a a connection that I think a lot of people on Turtle Island especially in the conquest cultures the people came here that they might not have a way to really sense an analogous experience for themselves although it's it's available you know you can you can you, you talk to indigenous people you could find it but but can you maybe share that story yeah um i mean overall the idea the idea is this 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 clarity this revelation coming with great clarity of how the memory of the power of the goddess is everywhere in ireland and i am nothing i'm not a scholar i'm just really a journalist the stories are almost screaming themselves out of out of us and so for me how it came about as you said, i was going to collect bees i've been a beekeeper for the last maybe seven eight years and i was collecting a particular hive of the native irish black bee on my way from kerry up, up the country and uh I caught my, my car broke down. I went into a house, a little, sort of an old rundown house, concrete house built in the late 1940s. And an old man was in there and he, he recognized me from the television, from my programs. And he asked me to come into this room. It was an abandoned room. There was nothing there. His house was rather decrepit. It was really a two room house. And, uh, he brought me over to one side of it and there had been, there was just like a, a, a fenced off, the wall, the gable wall was fenced off. Uh, you know, you couldn't access it. And he, he took away some of the, the, the bits of furniture that were blocking it and he told me to stand there. And I just, that was all. And he told me to stand in the gable wall and I stood there and suddenly, I mean, it's so hard to explain these things. I felt this rush, this torrent, this waterfall of energy powering through me, powering through me and almost gluing me to the spot. And I jumped away. I jumped like almost as if there was an electrical conduit there, a live electrical force field. And I just jumped away from it and looked at him, you know, because what am I going to say? What? How? What the hell? And he looked at me back and he said, yeah. You've sensed it. You've, he said, I just wanted to see, would you, would you sense it? Like, I keep it, I keep it closed off from people. I don't know what to do with it. He didn't. But what was it? Was it a portal? It was somehow there was this energy field there. And like, I'm still in that area. I've still been to that area and I've looked for the house and I haven't found it, but the house is definitely there. I need to look properly. And there was other people. There's a famous Irish band called Keela Musicians. And Ronan O'Snoddy, because this old man had told me that Ronan O'Snoddy from Keela had been in the same house doing a musical thing. And I've asked Ronan, he hasn't, like, I need to go back to the place. If there are portals and thresholds in cottages in Ireland, I need to go back and actually sense it uh, and, and sense it uh, on my own. But what I was, I was going to Loch Gur that same day. And Loch Gur, it's a, a stone circle. There are many stone circles in Ireland, as we know. But it's a sound stone circle in the Midlands of Ireland, south of Limerick. And the central part of Ireland, you know, no tourists go there. Has no, nobody is interested in the central parts of Ireland. It's not like the beautiful west coast, the Atlantic coast, or the more 
literary and intellectual centres of Dublin or on the, on the East Coast. It's just nothing. But Lochgar is this stone circle. And again, the biggest stone circle in Ireland. And there's one stone called Ranach Crum Dove in the circle, bigger than the others. And if you stand at that circle, again, you will have goosebumps. Your hair will be sounding. The power that is emanating from that circle is absolutely potent. And it's called... Grange in English called Grange Stone Circle from Grange from the 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 Grange the the Grange this goddess of the very connected to Anu you're talking about our Grange um, and beside it is Loch Gur and Loch Gur right beside the Stone Circle and Loch Gur again everything you need to know is from the name in the same way as Tlachtga was the Earth Spear Loch Gur Gur means Tarnkark er Gur is a phrase the hen is sitting on her eggs. It's Gura's incubation. So you have this lake called the Lake of Incubation, the Lake of Hatching. And it is this this belly, this womb-like belly arising out of the land, and then the lake surrounds it. Well, it did until the 19th century. There was drainage. So it's now only half around it, half, half around it. But it was known, if you ask any locals, they say, oh, yeah, this is the pregnant belly of the goddess Anya. And the goddess Anya was the great goddess. Anya means brightness or, yeah, it means beauty or brightness, really, or brilliance. And Anya was the goddess of the sun. So it's interesting because, you know, the sun is always male in most European things. In our, in Australia, in Aboriginal culture, it's not. The sun can be female. But so the sun, mostly in Irish culture, is male. But the brightness that she brings was, was um, manifested as this female energy. And so she's representing that area. And if you ask anybody in that area, they will tell you stories about Anya. And so the fact that she's still there in the waters, that her pregnant belly is there, and just up the road is Knock Anya, the head of Anya, the, where her mind is. And the reason where I was coming from to get to Limerick was on the Cork Kerry border, was called Rahiach Anya, which is the two breasts of Anya. So in fact, the whole landscape of Munster is still informed with this sense that it is actually just a manifestation of the goddess of Anya. Like, which is, which is sort of thing I would imagine seeing in Bolivia, in Bolivia or in Africa, but not in Ireland, the 21st century, that all of that consciousness was kept. And even just a few weeks ago, a, far, a doctor, a GP doctor down in Carrigaline, County Cork, he said to me, oh, he said, but did you know, just beneath Anya, just beneath the two breasts of Anya, is Moss Rauer Anya. It just makes me laugh. Moss Rauer means the fat buttocks of Anya. So, like everything in Munster is this manifestation of the goddess. And luckily, the place names have kept the knowledge alive. The myths and stories about the place have kept it all alive, despite all of the efforts of the British, of Christianity, of the Vikings, of the Normans, everyone has come through to block our connection with the goddess. She is there. She is screaming out. She's calling us back to it. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And for someone like me, as I said, who is who is really not not an academic, I don't go into archives. It's not like I'm going to any efforts to uprooting this. It's all there. It's just in the first look at the place name, the first time you ask any people for the stories. And what happened? We have this massive um, amount of myths, and some of those myths look like they're that they have information going back ten thousand years. But we sort of ignore them. My great my great granduncle that I mentioned, the O'Reilly, and his relations to Moss O'Reilly and Cecil O'Reilly, who were the first Gaelic scholars hundred years ago, from about eighteen ninety to nineteen fifties, they translated the myths, but they did so from the mindset of their time. And what was needed in eighteen ninety and nineteen tens and twenties were us to create myths that would lead to our independence from Britain. Because none of this could happen as long as we were under the yoke, as long as we were just being exploited by by the colonial oppressor. 
So they just found the story. They translated the stories with that mindset, with that agenda of we need male strong figures that lead a war against Britain. And so they dug out Cú Chulainn and they dug out Finn McCool, these warriors, these heroic warriors. And they also, they were influenced, obviously, by the Greek and the Roman myths, too. So they looked for people who were like Odysseus, who were like Zeus, and they found those. And they did a fair enough job. What's going to happen in the next 10 years, a new range of scholars, probably with probably women, but people with a wider, wider um, view, worldview, will look at the stories again, will translate the old stories from from old Irish and will find that actually there's so much more about the goddess. There's so much more about female energy. I mean, it's happening already and I, I've documented a bit of it. But, you know, as we know, myths speak to every generation in their own way. They are not limited by one and by one particular interpretation. So in every single way, the power of the earth, the goddess, the nourishing element of the spirit world is coming through to us. It's a time of, of great excitement. Yeah, indeed. And it's so cool the way th that guy knew that if he put you in the right spot, because he, 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 as you described in the book, he was just telling you, okay, he was guiding you from behind you. Now take a step that way. Take a, And he knew that if you stood there, something was going to happen, It's which is so cool that he just knew. It's kind of like, so someone's giving you LSD and they just know something's going to happen when you take it. <laughs> and so I do hope that you go back and find out what that, you know, if if that energy, it's not that it has to be measured scientifically or, or I mean, whatever, I'm, I'm open to that. It's not like, I, I mean, our science needs a paradigm shift too. And I'm might be good for um, someone coming from from the current paradigm to look at it and and maybe be stymied by it. Maybe maybe it, it would create some interesting phenomena that we can't quite explain or don't know, and and that might help as well. But just to to spread the word that that's there, and and again, it's not something that you know, living in in California, you would have to talk to indigenous people to find out about that. It's not like we're going to know that we're on a place that 3,000 years ago was declared the belly of the goddess because we're on some hill. And it's so cool that you could even see, uh, like when you were talking about um, about the hill that you found on, on GPS, that you could just see that in the satellite image. Wait a second. People have been doing something here, and you know that it goes back in, in this ancient, ancient way. Maybe we could try um, the second passage, if you feel yeah. up to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to say, I mean, you know, so that was that, um, that energy field was in a private man's house. And the man, he wasn't very nice at all. I don't have memory, nice memories of him. He's sort of a seedy character. But <laughs> so there's one great. reason why I'm, I, I presume he's dead by now. But it's one reason. And the house was dark and seedy like it. I didn't have a good feeling. But I I think I, I, all, I, got a, I get an almost as powerful sense, sense from that place in Loch Gar I talked about, or particularly from Isle Namiran, which is the central stone in Ishnach. And Ishnach is the central node of Ireland. It's the belly button of Ireland, the, the, the central point of Ireland. And it is where all of the energy was meant to have come through. The energies were united from the, the, the upper realms, the lower realms, and this realm in the Midda. And Midda means the middle. It means the sacred middle area. And that stone, Isle Namiran, is incredibly potent. Wow. Now, I don't like to... I don't like to say, oh, you need to go there and you need to feel that. Some yeah. of us, I am terribly, I'm incredibly 
non-empathic in certain fields. I don't see vistas. You know, we all do. We all feel and sense things in different ways. Some people through sound, some people through body, some through image. So I don't want to say just because I felt something that other people will and should. We are all empathic in different ways. Sure. But I do. I don't know. I, at the same time, I think I think if people go to Alnimirn or if people go to Loch Gur and go to that main, the biggest stone in the circle, they're likely to feel something. But they shouldn't in any way feel intimidated if they don't. It's not like, oh, you're better than, you know. Yeah. So it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard balance to say no, we need is. to open ourselves. And yet then that puts pressure on us to feel things. And um, I am so often so dead inside. I often feel nothing. <laughs> so I don't want to be telling other people. Well, no. And we do we do need a coming alive again. I think it's interesting that you thought that he, okay, maybe you didn't get a good vibe for him, but it's weird that he still knew that this was a place that he just couldn't go walking over and that he kept something blocking it. And that he knew that the person who lived there before also kept that place kind of, okay, that's a place you don't just go. And it's interesting because, you know, I think one sense of the sacred is that which strikes fear and awe in an untrained heart. I mean, if you, if you, you, you suddenly realize, wait a second, I don't know what this is. And I, I, you know, seedy or not, like I might not be the most ethical person, but I can't fool with this. And so I think that's interesting, too. And you're right. We, we can't be sure. We shouldn't. We all have the capacity to open. We all have to figure out what our gifts are in this life. And sometimes even that feeling that, um, OK, I, I can't feel anything. That's the place to look. And when we keep looking, we'll find that the feeling of not feeling will eventually break down under analysis. I mean, that's what meditation teaches us. OK. Fire away. Monken, yeah. By now, it should be clear that one can't explore the tangible elements of the Irish language. Oh, sorry, the Irish landscape. It's rocks and rivers, trees and towns. In any depth, would I take an account of what lies beneath? This world and the other world are so intermingled in our consciousness that we cannot consider one without the other. They are co-joined aspects of the same reality. It's just a lot harder to describe and define the spirit world, unseilele, the other world. Many will claim that it doesn't exist, or at least not in this plane of existence. But for eons, people insisted it laid somewhere to the west, out beyond the Atlantic, along the Golden Way that extends across the sea at sunset. This route is called Mog Mel, Plain of Honey, referring to the golden plain that shimmers across the sea before sunset. Although it's supposed to be some distance away, there are access points on certain lakes, rivers, bogs and waves, or else through caves, burial cairns, fairy forts, and even mists. It's said that people occasionally use a magical boat or a horse to travel there, but a powerful spell can get you there just as easily. The journey is rarely straightforward. Dangers or hurdles must be surpassed, and once you get there, further hostility can await. Alternatively, you can be lured in by a fairy lover or a trickster, and find yourself trapped there for prolonged periods that are often multiples of three in duration, three days, three months, three years, or three centuries. The conflicting accounts seem to convey that there is a process, either physical or internal, required, something that would spark a change of consciousness, an altered perspective. There was also a common but mystifying belief that if you were attempting to approach the other world, you were already within it as if the very act of committing yourself to it brought you there, which does make sense in a non-temporal, non-linear world. Describing the geography of a non-physical dimension is never easy, 
And yet it's important that we get some sense of it as aspects of the other world tend to bleed through into our, into our dimension quite frequently. Describing the geography of a non-physical dimension is again not easy, and yet it's important. The realm most, most referred to was Tirnanog, but it's hard to know if this was a simple, if this was just a single place, or if it was a collective term for other dimensions or planes of existence. Tirnanog means the land of youth, although the no, the no is probably better translated and translated as the ever young, because it refers to a world beyond time in which events occur in long linear sequence, much like how time was defined by Einstein and Heisenberg in the early 20th century. Tirnanog is a land of youth because without time, aging is not an issue. Everyone is young, or at least ageless there. Other names that could be synonyms for Tirnanog or may represent entirely different realms altogether are Tirfuihin, the land under the wave, Ma Malach, the enticing plain, Tach Dun, the house of the fairy lord Dun, Inis Suva, the island of joy, Adig Hach, the silver house, Awan Aulach, the twins with an abundance of apples, or Ma Ra Hyo, the plain of the two mists. Since these realms don't operate within our conventions of space and time, their appearance seems to change sporadically. Some accounts describe them as consisting of forested wilderness, while others describe flower-clad meadows buzzing with bees. There are tales of cities and fortresses made of precious metals and feather touch, while other tales home in on the sacred well at the heart of the land, surrounded by a grove of nine hazel trees, or a single dominant tree with a bloom on every bough. One of these trees has an enchanted silver branch laden with golden apples, and the well is inhabited by a sacred salmon, and dangling above it is a drinking horn or an enchanted cup. And if this sacred cup is reminiscent of a chalice, it's probably, of course, because Christianity borrowed most of its eternal, most of its central tropes and tenets from previous faiths. Things are rarely just one way in the other world. They depend on how they are being pierced, perceived, and how observant the person is looking at them. Like how quantum physics describes all possibilities as existing simultaneously until the point at which they are observed. In Tirnanog, reality is never just one thing. It's both and, depending on your outlook and your wishes. Any attempt at describing these places can therefore capture only a meagre, imperfect shadow of what they truly are. Such multidimensional, all-encompassing realms are better hinted at than described in detail. I can imagine Shamacha storytellers scoffing at my crude description of such realms here. They would claim that such information cannot be transmitted through text. It needs a group of people huddled around a fireside and a long dark night, or better still, a number of nights, a dark winter, a lifetime. For each element of Tirnanog and its other sister lands, there are key concepts that must be communicated. For instance, its sacred well is sometimes regarded as the birthplace of humanity, even of the entirety of existence. The tree that looms over the well is considered the axis of the world. It's the central tent post of the circus realm we inhabit, and also the central tenet on which the druid's power is based. The part of the sacred tree, known as the silver branch, is a metaphor for a concept that is beyond my ability to communicate, a concept 
so vast as any ocean. That's so good. It's really loaded too. And of course it 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 has in it what we were touching on just as as we shifted into that passage which is the shift in consciousness, the vision quest that the 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 dominant culture has finally caught up to its own wisdom traditions, our science and and I say this often and it's because everyone needs to really get this. It's hard. It's easy to say intellectually. Actually, even intellectually, it's hard to say, but it's very hard also to get ourselves fully around it. And that is that knowledge depends on the way we come to know. That means that knowledge depends on the knower, the state of being of the knower. The way we've organized knowing in the dominant culture, it doesn't depend on who you are or what you are. And that wisdom traditions are saying, no, but real knowledge does. So you must only have partial knowledge, what Plato called partially correct opinions. And they can be very powerful because they're partially correct. But they have negative consequences, and that's why we're degrading the world. We have little fragments that we don't understand are fragments. And so you talk about an access point is a shift in consciousness, and even the right intention, that's the sincere wish that the wisdom traditions show us in these stories. The psyche has the sincere wish to be with Eros, to be with love, to be with Amor. And so she accomplishes the tasks by means of nature helping her. I mean, these are beautiful echoes. I just really, uh, uh, there's so much in that. I think if people, go back and listen again, everybody. Have you read uh, Gary Snyder's book, The Practice of the Wild? No. Oh, no. The Great Testament of Turtle Island. I, I recommend it to you so wholeheartedly. I recommend it to everyone. This is the gospel of this place from someone who really, uh, indigenous people recognized as someone who really did re-indigenize to a significant degree. One time at a reading, somebody told Gary Snyder, you know, uh, he was an indigenous person. He said, my my grandfather wanted me to come here and tell you that he sees you as indigenous. And Gary Snyder said, well, I wouldn't go that far. But he really did try. So I want to share with you, there's two passages um, for two different, this is paired with with what you just read, and then we can look at another one for another part of your book. So this is uh, from the book, The Practice of the Wild, which is a collection of essays. And this essay is The Good Wild Sacred. It's a beautiful essay. Nanao Sakaki, who is a poet, I recommend uh, people look uh, up Nanao Sakaki, which is wonderful. Uh, Nanao Sakaki, John Stokes, and I were in Australia in the fall of 1981 at the invitation of the Aboriginal Arts Board doing some teaching, poetry readings, and workshops with both Aboriginal leaders and children. We were traveling by truck over a dirt track west from Alice Springs in the company of a Pintubi elder named Jibi Chungarayi. As we rolled along the dusty road, sitting back in the bed of a pickup, he began to speak very rapidly to me. He was talking about a mountain over there, telling me a story about some wallabies that came to that mountain in the dream time and got into some kind of mischief with some lizard girls. He had hardly finished that story, and he started in on another story about another hill over here and another story over there. I couldn't keep up. I realized after about half an hour of this that these were tales to be told while walking and that I was experiencing a speeded-up version of what might be leisurely told over several days of foot travel. Mr. Chingarayi felt graciously compelled to share a body of lore with me by virtue of the simple fact that I was there. So remember a time when you journeyed on foot over hundreds of miles, walking fast and often traveling at night, 
traveling night long and napping in the acacia shade during the day, and these stories were told to you as you went. In your travels with an older person, you were given a map you could memorize, full of lore and song and also practical information. Off by yourself, you could sing those songs to bring yourself back, and you could maybe travel to a place you'd never been, steering only by songs you had learned. We made camp at a waterhole called Ilipili and rendezvoused with a number of Pintubi people from the surrounding desert country. Each night they'd start the evening saying, What will we sing? and get a reply like, Let's sing the walk up Darwin. They'd start out and argue and sing and clap their way along through it. It was during the full moon period. A few clouds would sail and trail in the cool light and mild desert wind. I had learned that the elders liked black tea, and several times a night I'd make a pot right at the fire, with lots of white sugar the way they wanted it. The singers would stop when they felt like it. I'd ask Jimmy, how far did you get tonight? He'd say, well, we got two-thirds of the way to Darwin. This can be seen as one example of the many ways landscape, myth, and information were braided together in preliterate societies. One day, driving near Ilipili, we stopped the truck, and Jimmy and the three other elderly gentlemen got out, and he said, We'll take you to see a sacred place here. I guess you're old enough. They turned to the boys and told them to stay behind. As we climbed the bedrock hill, these ordinarily cheery and loud-talking aboriginal men began to drop their voices. As we got higher up, they were speaking whispers, and their whole manner changed. One said almost inaudibly, Now we are coming close. Then they got on their hands and knees and crawled. We crawled up the last two hundred feet, then over a little rise into a small basin of broken and oddly shaped rocks. They whispered to us with respect and awe of what was there. Then we all backed away. We got back down the hill and at a certain point stood and walked. At another point, voices rose. Back at the truck, everybody was talking loud again, and no more mention was made of the sacred place. Very powerful, very much in mind. We learned later that it was indeed a place where young men were taken for ceremony. It's really, really wonderful, singing the songs of the place. Mm-hmm. And when you were reading, I was reminded of that book by the Aborig- uh, pardon me, the Australian uh, anthropologist, White Men Got No Dreaming. Yeah. You were talking mm-hmm. about the disconnection and, yeah, that yeah. loss. Uh, I don't I mean, something happens to me now with um, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm faced with any of the wisdom this, that Aboriginal elders are bringing to the world. Uh, two things are happening. Uh, first, because... You know, you talked to her just before you get that reading about the um, almost the conditioning. Because I realize how conditioned I am in my mind. In a, you know, as you were saying, it's about what questions you ask, how you frame it. We don't realize our knowing is only based on what we know and on the, and the framework and the channels through which we do that. And I am so much a product of of Ireland, of Christian Ireland, of the 1970s, the the patriarchy, of the middle-class mindset. So I don't trust 
what I say because every I am such a bad conduit for these information because our brains have been weakened and rotten, and we the sense of the magic, the sense of the other world, the sense of the 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 bed and the chair and the computer having life in it is often not is not rational to me. I'm so limited by my rationality, and so when when I am like when I with First Nations people or Aboriginal people and their their consciousness of the land. I am so humbled by it. And I hate to even write a sentence in a book because I am ignorant. I'm entirely ignorant of these things. So all I am is just in awe of people who do have a wider sense of, of beingness, of reality, and how much we have to learn. And, and how everything I'm saying, how everything I'm saying is is polluted by my own limited thinking but it's all we can do we just humbly go forward and realize we don't we don't know yeah well there's a chance for us all to re-indigenize and and as i also often point out vine deloria a great uh, lakota intellectual um an elder he said well even a lot of people you you say they're indigenous but they've got to re-indigenize too because th- we were also destabilized conquest consciousness destabilizes those infected with it it doesn't matter what color skin you have you're destabilized by it, and we can all heal from it together. And that each of us have ancestors who were indigenous. And and we can talk to the people who, who have lived longest in the places where we now find ourselves, and we can find a way to recover our sanity and make them spaces of sanity and sacredness. I think that's available that's to us, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And this idea of over-romanticizing indigenous people is not the answer either. Mm-hmm. So, as you say, it's just humbling. All of us realize we are all coming to a time of learning. We've all made mistakes and, and fallen into systems of belief and systems of thinking that haven't served us. Um, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's a time of just staying quiet and just walking the land and feeling. But yet the vacuum is so big and the wish of almost a sort of is it the egotistical part of me or just the male vocal part the, the, to put ideas down and to say things and possibly silence the, Yeah, would be wiser. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, well, let me ask you, uh, Mankan, I, I didn't uh, check in with you for time. Do, do, you have, uh, do you have at least 10 minutes? I do. Okay. And uh, do you have beyond 10 minutes? I do. <laughs> okay. Why don't we do this? Because I want to make sure you tell me when uh, you saw the passages that I have, I want to make sure that you can read number six, to which I have no response. That's just the closing, because I think it's a beautiful and it's from your conclusion, actually. Um, so why don't we just try at least a couple uh, more back and forth, and, and then we can muse on them. Um, I, I I wonder, have you heard, uh, well, you've heard of probably, but have you read any Aldo Leopold? Yes, but it's been a while since I have. Good. Yeah. So, And I bet this little passage you might not know, and it touches on some things that we've been talking about. So if you read your number three, I have it paired with Aldo Leopold here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good. Um, yeah, so... But the most interesting element is not just that rivers were regarded as embodiments of female divinity, but that so many of the mythical characters associated with them were women seeking knowledge. Tuag was learning from the great druid harpist Ferfi. Bowen and Shunan sought knowledge from the sacred wells. In fact, Cunnaswell was known as a font of wisdom and a source of insight from the other world. In the rivers, in the rivers dwelt the salmon of knowledge, which was regarded as the source of all wisdom and sacred insight, often called the Brudan Fasa. And some tales say that Shunan caught and ate this magical fish, and that was how she attained wisdom. 
eating the sacred fish or eating the quill crimmond, the magical hazelnuts that gave fish its wisdom, were wide, was widely accepted as a metaphor for gaining enlightenment. That is what so many of the old stories are really all about. They are elaborate hints leading us to consider that there may be more to existence than our limited rational brains would have us believe. So much of mythology is about breaking free from the stranglehold of society and our conditioned mind to embrace wider possibilities. Just as we often find clarity in the shower or while swimming or walking by the waterside, these stories are trying to remind us that there is potency in our rivers and that we should perhaps turn to them when seeking insights and answers. On a superficial level, the tales can appear like Christian parables to be emphasizing control and duty. But if you dig a little deeper, they reveal their true message of how we can expand ourselves and in the process grow in wisdom and strength and self-expression. The relevance of these rivers of inspiration for us today is that we're living in an age that is crying out for fresh thinking and new insights. There's a need for discoveries and new possibilities, and it can be heartening to know that there's an ancient source of wisdom that we can access through another world of imagination and creativity. For example, the destructive waves that threaten Tuug and Bowen and Shunan, who are these goddesses anyway, represented in the land by different water sources, seem uncannily apt in this era of rising sea levels and climate change. Environmental scientists in Australia have for some time accepted First Nation stories as evidence of climate change more than 13,000 years ago. But we in Ireland are only beginning to explore whether the floods caused by supernatural waves or peeing horses may hint at ancient climate change events. The story of Shunan reassures me that while tough challenges may well lie ahead, there is accessible somewhere within us a well surrounded by nine hazel trees of wisdom that flower and fruit every season of the year. This well can never really dry up, and it represents imagination, vision, and creativity. It is eternal, and as long as the River Shannon flows, we will always be reminded of it. There is, though, one note of caution to sound. The continued flow of the Shannon is under threat, as the government considers a major infrastructure project to pipe millions of gallons of water 170 kilometres across the country to the East Coast. It's likely to affect the fragile ecosystem of the river and the many aquatic and non-aquatic forms of life, including migratory birds, insects and rare plants, depend on it. The sheer might of this river has meant that it hasn't been corralled to the same extent as others, and we need to maintain its freedom. Too many Irish rivers have been banked, diked and canalised over the two centuries for the sake of financial productivity. A phalanx of diggers is sent every few years to dredge the nation's rivers and streams so that the farmland will remain dry and productive. Our obsession with redirecting watercourses and draining the land has had a terrible toll on biodiversity. Now is a time to start blocking drains and dismantling human structures to allow our rivers to remember how to be rivers again. We need to allow them to re-establish their natural relationship with the land and for their own good, as well as for ours. Mm. That's just wonderful. Now, this is uh, the words that, there are quotes here from Aldo Leopold. This is from a text that I wrote, and the other words are mine. Aldo Leopold wrote, quote, One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. 
Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to the layman. An ecologist must either harden his shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his business, or he must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. End quote. Any serious philosopher would say the same about philosophy, a.k.a. love wisdom. To study any way, any holistic philosophy of life with heart, makes us sensitive to wounds and wounding in every direction. Much of the damage inflicted on the soul remains repressed and unconscious, essentially invisible to the general public. That includes damage done to other human souls, to non-human souls, and to the soul of the world. The absence of liminal awareness goes without conscious notice, generally speaking, and far too many of us walk asleep, yet frenetic along the edges of a threshold we do not perceive and are seduced to ignore. We can become sensitized, and we can notice a missing wildness and wonder, a missing magic and mystery, together with an invasive profanity even as we continue to sense the sacredness of the world that makes this spreading degradation all the more horrific. So many of us simply do not know what we are missing, even if we suspect, even if we become sleepless, agitated, stressed, full of self-doubt and self-loathing, because we have forsaken what we are and what the world is. In the same essay, Leopold writes the following, One of the marvels of early Wisconsin was the round river, a river that flowed into itself and thus sped around and around in a never-ending circuit. Paul Bunyan discovered it, and the Bunyan saga tells how he floated many a log down its restless waters. No one has suspected Paul of speaking in parables, yet in this instance he did. Wisconsin not only had a round river, Wisconsin is one. The current is the stream of energy which flows out of the soil into plants, thence into animals, thence back into the soil in a never-ending circuit of life. We who are the heirs and the signs of Paul Bunyan have not found out either what we are doing to the river or what the river is doing to us. Leopold asks us to awaken from our dogmatic slumber. There is a marvel, a wonder, already in the world as the world, and there is a penalty for ignoring it. No ignorance of wonder goes unpunished. No degradation of sacredness comes without a self-wounding. How many philosophers or ordinary citizens today can say they know what they do to the river or what the river does to them? To find out means entrance into nature, self-liberation into ecologies of mind that we can call the practice of magic and mystery. Again, by mention of magic, we intend no obscurantism, irrationalism, or airy-fairy foolishness. We are talking about a paradigm shift, and the liberation, the magic, has to do with a kind of attunement with what patterning that creates and connects all things, attunement with the sacred creative ordering, which first demands an inhibition of the tendency to point at aspects of the patterning and take them as parts in a linear mechanistic conception of causality, to inhibit that deeply ingrained habit, and instead to intimately realize a deeper nonlinear ordering. We cannot do this. We can only realize it as non-doing.
Well, that's the Round River, and it's interesting that this is a, this Paul Bunyan is a, a settler myth mythology. Paul Bunyan is a figure that is kind of like from you could say quote unquote American mythology, or you know we, we might try to reduce it to legend or folklore. But it's wonderful that you get this image where where he's saying, hey, even here, we're able to dream, just like if you watch Star Wars, the first Star Wars especially, and you say, wow, this guy tapped into the, into the well that you were, t- that was in your, your passage. He tapped into that well that's always there for us, that river that's always flowing. And Paul mm-hmm. Bunyan does for us too, in a way. Yeah, and it, it saddens me when I read my piece, when I listen to it, which reads very well and sounds very evocative and powerful. And when you read Aldo saying, we need to connect to nature, we need to connect to the land and there it will heal us. I write that, I say that, and Aldo says, it. I don't do that. You know, so often, that particularly the last few years, you know, I've had more attention and more success. So I spend my time on my computer. Do you know, I'm telling people to connect to nature and to open our minds. And yet so much of my time, I'm not doing it. So you're not asking me my personal impression, but this is what is alive for me at the moment when I hear these things. It's such good advice. I'm telling other people to do it. Aldo's telling us to do it. And yet so often I don't. So often I forget to tune into nature. Yeah, it's really, it's so interesting because that's part of how the pattern of insanity perpetuates itself. It, it keeps us more and more atomized. The ideal right now for the pattern of insanity is everybody in front of a screen with Netflix and Amazon. You watch Netflix, you buy from Amazon. And that definitely keeps us cut off. I mean, I wrote a post recently that, uh, and and here it was, it was like trying to, because when I work with people, ideally, I, I like there to be an outside component. And so I, I, I said, there is a feedback loop of earth and soul. If you want to boost creativity, and it's funny, we have measured this, um, you can boost creativity and cognitive performance by 50%. By disconnecting from this whole thing, it's called the three-day effect. Uh, David Strayer is a scientist who, who, who worked on this, and I can send you the, the, uh, the, the, some of the research. But uh, it's not just his study, but there's a series of studies that show that the built environment basically produces thinking that is less creative, less compassionate, and less sensitive to nature, less oriented toward nature's concerns. And so there's this, all he did was take people out. What happened was he was a, he was a cognitive science, neuroscience researcher, and he found that rather than in the laboratory with all the other bright minds and all the great equipment and all the studies and the access to the journals, rather than that being the place where his best ideas came to him, he found that if he would, when he was going in hikes into the backcountry, and he found, he realized that it wasn't right away, it was after he was out there for three or four days. And then he started asking people and said, have you noticed this? And they said, oh, yeah, man, it takes you three or four days to decompress. Now, from my experience as a philosopher, what I know is that if anybody who is an advanced practitioner will tell you if they hold a retreat, you might have a daily meditation practice, maybe an hour a day. But when you come to the retreat, the the person running that retreat knows that you're not going to be in your right mind for three or four days. They basically know the first three days, you're not, nothing really is going to shift for you. You don't realize that the mind you're using going about, which you think is your head, it's my clear mind, it's my rational mind, I solve problems, I launch rockets. And we don't see what Socrates was telling us. No, you guys are out of your minds. You're completely out of your minds and you don't see it. 
And it takes that stepping out. So you're right, it's this weird paradox. I always tell people I do podcasts for the end of podcasts. Like I'm not some violent person against podcasting, but, but we need to get be around fires again <laughs> and, and, and really talking to each other, right? And slipping into these different states of consciousness because this, this thing where we plug in and we put these headphones in, it's great in a lot of ways, but only if it cures us from doing this so much. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, the, it's the, the wonderful paradox. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking to a lot of people one on one. I mean, if any of you out there can start even listening in a group, it would be different. But I know that a lot of people and that's people like that. There's an intimacy, right? You know, Dr. Nikos is whispering right in your ear, wisdom, love and beauty is coming to you. But we need the elements and we need each other and we need these other beings even if we're nervous around other humans well then you know go with the horses and the trees and the rivers and um, that's why buddha had to cross the river too right the narajana comes to mind with your stories you know you have these female figures going to the river and there's buddha crossing the river kind of washing the last bits of his ignorance look i'm done with all that (laughs) when he leaves the palace he does the same thing and his horse leaps across, carries him across that threshold, and then he has to get in the water this time. And really, that's wonderful. Okay, do we do we have time for one more exchange of passages, or where are we at for you? No, we do. We shall do one more, as you say. I, wonder, I mean, the beautiful thing is this talk is being dictated by the sun, by the light on your face and my face. The sun has set now behind me, but there's some sort of low evening sun. Um but we will. We'll do one more. And uh, then, I, you know, I'm doing the show where I'm trying to talk about all of these elements through the metaphor of butter and cream, uh, a bread and butter. So I need to go and buy cream now so I can make more, so that I have butter so the audience can churn butter to think about the, 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 the these metaphors of the power and the wisdom that is in language and landscape and lore. So that's what I, I'm going to do in a few minutes. I'm going to go out and get buy some cream. That's beautiful. Um, but, but before that, will I read which what which piece should I read? You should read the final bit. I really like that. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Um, what should be clear from these diverse explorations is that our people were once rooted to a profound degree in the autonomy of the land and the energies that arose from it. As long as we had a connection with this world and the world beyond and the knowledge of how these realms reacted to each other, we had power. We understood that there were different realities that could be accessed, or at least imagined if necessary, and this made us strong. In recent years, we've become disassociated from this knowledge, and the latent appreciation that our ancestors had of the natural world and the cycles through which it turns, as well as the realms beyond, in both the cosmos and the other worlds. So much, so much has been lost, but it's not through any fault of our own. Those who sought to colonize us realized that it was vital that we be severed from this. Each successive group who came to subjugate us saw it as a priority to disconnect us from our power. All had an agenda to promulgate an authoritarian regime to enforce. They made sure to close down the sacred areas or to supersede them with centers of their own on top of the original sites or nearby. So successful were they at disconnecting us from our power points that we are now happily we are now happy to build a motorway through the royal site of Tara and to ignore sites like the hill of Ishnach or Rakraham or Lochgur. We have forgotten where our power lies and how she, how, and how 
And we now sneer and denigrate these inland and less dramatically picturesque areas that were once our Axis Mundi, our cosmic frontier, where the sacred and the physical meet. It's about time we cast off our blinkers and remember how this island has always been a vibrant, buoyant, spiritually nourishing place, activated by a belief in animism, which recognises that nature is infused with an illuminating life force that imbues it with sanctity. The question now, as the now as the feminist as the question now as the feminine energy is rising once again is whether we as Irish people and those of other cultures who connect with us are ready to take back this mantle and begin the process of awakening and reconnecting with our past, with who we are, our land, our language and culture. We shouldn't underestimate the power of this land as a force of transformation. The bogs, rivers, mountains and shorelines are more than just preservers of old myths, bones and memories. They are energy banks and time sponges, and what is held within them seeks release. Oh man, that's really beautiful. There it is. I mean, we we are, are at a time when we feel powerless, and especially in the dominant culture, people are acting out. The soul is acting out. We don't know how to hear that, and so then people, you know, get a big truck and burn more fossil fuel. And we don't understand that the, our power is in the land. We're not powerless. It's not that the only choice we have is how to go down in flames. Uh, that we do have a way to listen to the land and to be this mutual illumination. I like that you have that illuminative, that there's a mutual illumination of us and the land. And I, I just want to thank you for this book and encourage people. to. This is a, a super fun book to read. You don't, you don't have to get on a plane. Send Home Tree, I'll get a, he mentions it in the book, and I can send you a link. Where I, I, Grace Wells, the poet, is connected with Home Tree, too, and Kathy Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll say there's enough, even if you, 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 I think this happens. You know, sometimes I've written things, and a person, you know, like a client will have like a kind of synchronicity with it. And that's not because of me. I think it's because of what we tap into. So when I write about horses or, you know, myth, and, and then some, that opens something up for people, uh, it, it, we can be even clumsy, but it's, I think, our good intention. So I, I think your book is beautiful. But even if you say, well, oh, I, when Leopold says these things, they, they call to me too. But your book calls. And I, I will just mention, it was interesting. I had this dream where, first of all, I, I, of course, I could have guessed that you were going to mention the Salmon of Wisdom. But I was in the dream talking to somebody, and I was telling them, I, I said, well, I've, I have a pendant of the Salmon of Wisdom. And this was the day before I began reading your book. So I didn't know what was in the book. And then I said, well, but I've got this other pendant. Now, in my mind, I knew that the other pendant was a horse. But when I went and, and, and grabbed it I, and I looked at it, it was a big tree that looked very much like the tree image that you have. I mean, it was, ex I would say that's the image that I saw. It was so sort of synchronistic. And, and then I, and I was looking at it and I said, yeah, see, that's the tree of life. And, and, and it's a big oak. And then, and then I said, oh, and I've got another one that's also a tree of life. And, and this, these are not things that I <laughs> actually wear. I said, well, there, that's a goddess. 
and uh, she's there with a hazel hazel it's like a hazel tree which looks more like a shrub but then she's got this big um, staff which is also the axis mundi and also a magic wand which I always so when I think of the hazel I think of Yeats and the magic wand that the man makes when he goes out to the hazel wood because there's a fire in his in his brain in his heart so um, there's magic in this book is what I want people to know. I think, you know, you can open up to synchronicities and, and uh, secrets and insights. And it's a wonderful, wonderful way to learn together how we can re-indigenize. And, and just to say, it's all there beyond the book, too. So this book isn't a book telling people we need to do something or what to do. And in fact, we can access all of the wisdom that's in the book without ever reading the book. If we visit Ireland at the moment or visit anywhere where these centres of energy are happening and this new movement, we will um, we will enter and experience these things. Like I now find myself giving talks in Ireland or just coming to gatherings in Ireland. And I'm surrounded by people, particularly women in their late 20s and early 30s, who are thinking and saying these things far more eloquently than I ever could. So I just happen to be one manifestation of someone who was good, a journalist who was good at putting words together. But this is beyond. This is a knowledge and awareness. So, So the book isn't saying you need to do this. The book is just tracking something is happening in Ireland, but around the world. People are tuning into a wider way to way of being. So I am and I know I am probably biased in where I'm standing, but all I'm seeing is this rising phenomenal um, wish and a, a, a rising of wisdom and wish to communicate and to connect with people. So you could just either you could go to Home Tree, a gathering of the of the of the that woodland charity, or you could go to the festivals that happen once a year now on the Hill of Ishnach, and you will come across these ideas and people and this feeling of the land probably more in, definitely more impactful than my book so it's just i am tracking something that's happening in ireland but it's happening around the world people intuitive young open-minded people seem to be creating connecting with wisdom and bringing it forth and of course it's not even humans it's definitely not my book really and it's not humans it's coming from the land i truly believe there's an energy rising up among us all and we in spite of ourselves we are opening ourselves and tuning into these things again. Yeah. I feel that so strongly. Yeah. And please start where you are. I say that again. I mean, that's the thing. Start where you are. Find there is sacredness every place. And there every place on Turtle Island. I know I have a big audience here. I know I have a lot of listeners in Ireland too. But here on Turtle Island, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to Burning Man. That's probably counterproductive. Just look where you're at and find it. The magic is really there. Orrin Lyons once said that too. He said, you know, so somebody once said to me, oh, so-and-so died and she had all this knowledge and all this, about all the plants and all that. He said, well, okay, it's tough that she died, but it's all there. Just go outside. Just go outside. <laughs> I really love Oren Line. So we'll, we'll have links for things. Um, and uh, you, so look in the show notes, uh, links for some of the things that we read and talked about and links uh, to Munkin, Munkin's book and his uh, website. And my friend, thank you for joining us on Dangerous Wisdom. Have a wonderful journey through Turtle Island. And thank you for coming here to share. And uh, I love your enthusiasm and positivity of mind. It's beautiful. Uh, thank you, Nikos. I have enjoyed this conversation. I find it so stimulating, genuinely. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and honored and very pleased. 
Wonderful. And thanks to all of you for joining us. If you have any questions, reflections, stories to share about your connection with the land, the mystery and magic of your landscape or the landscapes of the world, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.